Uh, we're going to be in Romans 15. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and find uh, Romans chapter 15. Two things I need to mention real quick before we get into the message. Uh, whoops, do I have that back there somewhere, Parker? Or Noah, I'm sorry. Parker's on video today. Noah's, Noah's on the computer today. Uh, step one's coming up next Sunday, and I wanted to let you know about that. This is for anybody that wants to learn more about Murray Hills. If you've been coming, this is your first or second time, and you're like, I'd like to know just a little bit more than the website. I'd like to know just a little bit more than what I'm seeing on Sundays. That, that's what this is for. So I go over our vision, our values, um, do a lot of Q&A, and so if you want to come to that, it's a, it's a luncheon. It's right after the second service. You sign up for it through the Connect card. So there's a Connect card in, on the seat in front of you. If you're online, there's an, a virtual version of that, and just mark Learn About Becoming a Member or write Step 1 on it, and we'll get you registered for that. That's coming up next Sunday. And then group sign-ups. This is our last Sunday that we're going to be emphasizing group sign-ups. It's not the last Sunday to sign up, but January 29th, all our community groups start meeting. So if you're not in a community group and you're interested in, in joining one, make sure and sign up for those online. Okay, let's go to Romans 15. We're going to wrap up our study today of Romans. And um, I've got kind of an interesting text. Uh, because when you read the text, there's not much there. And so it's kind of a, like this is the end of the letter and as in the case in a lot of letters, you know, there's kind of like, there's a, this is like, I explained Romans when we started this as like a theological essay. Paul's writing this, this is his opportunity, he hasn't been to Rome, so this is his opportunity to teach the Roman church. And uh, so there's a lot of meat in the book of Romans. And then when you get to the end, he's kind of doing a lot of personal kind of hellos and goodbyes and, and talking about just some practical considerations. And it doesn't feel like, when you first read it, it doesn't feel like there's much there. You're like, all right, he's, you know, what's he saying? This, but I believe that if, if we believe that the words of Paul were inspired by God, he was inspired to write the things that he wrote, then there's always something there. There's always something for us to learn. And I think there's something for us to learn here, even though Paul's just basically explaining his actions and what he's getting ready to do, I think there's something for us to learn. So we're going to start in verse uh, 23. And leading into this, of course, verses, or chapters 14 and 15, Paul was telling everybody, um, you guys stop judging each other, and you guys stop criticizing each other, and you guys stop condemning each other, and you guys start getting along. And he's saying this to Jewish and Gentile believers. And if you think about it, that's really been a theme throughout the letter, because he started Romans 1, 2, and 3 with, you got to stop judging each other, you got to stop criticizing each other and condemning each other, and you got to learn to get along together. And the way, in, in 1 and 2, he says... Uh, the motivation for that is you're all a bunch of sinners, so who, who are you to think you're any better than another group of sinners just because you sin differently than this group sins? And he's like, you all need Jesus. And then he ends the letter by saying, this is the key to everybody getting together. This is the key to stop judging and condemning and criticizing one another. Uh, chapter 14, verse 7, I believe it is, he says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. So that's the key, it's 15-7. Accept one another then as Christ accepted you. And then he kind of explains a little bit more how Gentile believers, you need the Jewish believers. Jewish believers, you need the Gentile believers. And he describes how he was called to be a minister to the Gentiles. Even though he was a Jewish believer, he was called to be a minister to the Gentiles. And he wanted to preach Christ in areas that Christ was not known. And then we get down to verse 23. So let's take a look at this. We'll read it and, and kind of talk about it here. So I'm going I'm to use the screen because I don't have my glasses. Okay. Okay. Um, 
Okay, there it is. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions. He was talking about the ministry he's been doing, traveling around these Gentile churches. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution to the poor uh, among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. So, after I've completed this task and have made sure that we have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of our spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. That's the end of the book. There's, a, there's one more chapter. It's a, it's a bunch of personal greetings. But that's the, that's the last teaching right there is, uh, is that. And again, like I said, it doesn't feel like a teaching. I mean, you just, when you read it, Paul's just basically saying, hey, uh, I'm, I'm going to finally get to come see you guys, and I'm going to stop by on my way to Spain, and uh, first got to go deliver this contribution, so pray for me, I'll, I'll see you soon. And you're like, what is, what is there to learn there? What, you know, how, how does that interact? How does that intersect with anything? And I, I always think it's interesting for me to see how the Bible answers questions that I didn't know I was asking. And that's kind of what happened to me this week was it, there was there was a question that I was asking and I didn't realize that this text would speak to it in the way that it did because through Paul's explanation of his actions it kind of speaks to to something that like I said I didn't know I was asking uh, you guys know that I love to read again I've always got a bunch of different books going I, I finally learned to love to read after I got out of school because I discovered I could read whatever I wanted. Like, there wasn't, nobody was making me read something. All through school, I was being made to read something. No offense to you teachers. It was good stuff you were making us read. But uh, once I got out of school, and I, like, I could just pick any book I want. I, I can read about football. I can read about sports. I can read about whatever. And so I'm always reading, and, and very rarely does it intersect with anything I'm teaching on Sunday morning. I've been on a mafia kick lately. It doesn't really, I mean, there's some messages there. There's some lessons. Uh, but it doesn't really relate. Uh, I just finished uh, Charlie Daniels' memoir, and uh, I love Charlie Daniels. I grew up on Charlie Daniels' music, so I just finished that one. It does preach, actually. And um, I'm reading David Goggins' book. And if you know him, mm -mm, no, that's not, not anything related to Romans, unless we're talking about he needs to clean up his language. But uh, I'm reading another book that I got for Christmas that's called The Sum of Us. What Racism Cost Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. So my, my wife got me this, and uh, Heather McGee is the author, and she's a, an expert in economic and social policy. And her basic thesis is that a lot of these policies that were instituted throughout the United States, uh, especially after uh, Reconstruction, that were meant to hurt one racial group, actually hurt the entire country. Like, it, it, they were meant to disadvantage one group, but it actually, you were disadvantaging everybody through that. And the chapter I was reading this week was about the subprime uh, lending crisis. And uh, it, was, it told the story of a couple named Janice and Isaiah Tomlin who were married in 1977. And 
they um, set a goal by their first anniversary. They wanted to be home buyers. They would be the first home buyers in their family because their parents and their grandparents had not been able to own their own home due to redlining and some other, uh, you know, policies that took place. And so, they they would be the first home buyers. And she was a school teacher. He was a, an auto mechanic. They saved up a thousand dollars, and they purchased their first home on Creechy Avenue. It was a two bedroom home for eleven thousand five hundred dollars. Well, by the time the nineties rolled around, they'd been paying on that home. They uh, had raised two kids in that home. They'd done a lot of improvements and a lot of expansion and improvement. And the neighborhood had done a lot of expansions and improvements. And so home values in the area were going up. That ought to sound familiar if you live in Columbia. So home values were going up. And they were getting a lot of phone calls from home refinance companies that were just encouraging them to maybe consider the option of refinancing their home. And uh, they weren't really interested in that. But they did want to send their kids to a private school. And so Janice thought, I don't maybe. And so after multiple calls from a, a group called Chase Mortgage Bankers, and I don't think it's the same Chase as the credit card company, but Chase Mortgage Brokers, um, she finally called and, and set up an appointment. And she sat down with a sales rep and talked about the options for refinancing her home. And she said the sales rep was super kind, so kind, like really probably too kind. Looking back on it, too kind. And uh, the sales rep even shared her Christian faith. And she talked about her dreams and her husband's dreams of what they wanted to do for their children and the education they wanted to provide for them. And the sales rep, like, reached over and took her hand and said, God sent you to us. God sent you to us. And um, Chase Mortgage Brokers positioned itself as a broker, which is somebody who finds the best loan for a homeowner. But they actually had a secret agreement with just one lender. It was called Emergent. And sales reps received kickbacks from the lender on every loan they sold, which is not, I mean, it's a commission. The kickbacks is a commission. They received a commission on every loan they sold. The deal, though, this lender gave them a higher commission if they were able to talk the homeowner into a higher rate. So even if the homeowner qualified for a lower rate, if they could somehow convince them to, to accept a higher rate, then they would receive a higher commission. And so Janice was, of course, a little bit leery of this and kind of thinking through, like, I don't know if I, this doesn't, all this doesn't sound right. But uh, she asked a ton of questions and, and tried to learn as much as she could. But the sales rep was very adamant on, you don't need to read the fine print. I'm gonna, I'll explain it all to you because I'm with you. I'm on your side here. And so um, she ended up signing a note that was on an adjustable rate mortgage. And the, the rate was in the double digits, which gave her a little bit of pause, but they could still make it. And the sales rep said, you know, there's a good chance that after five, five or six months of making these payments, it's going to go down. Of course, you remember it didn't go down, it went up. But um, the big thing that she did was included a lot of fees in the note. And the fee, it's, it's something called equity stripping. So the fees don't go on the payment, they come out of the equity. And the fees amounted to 12% of the loan value on day one. And so they had all these hidden fees. They had this adjustable rate subprime mortgage. And um, they qualified for a prime rate. That was the kicker of the whole thing. Like they had good credit. She'd never missed a payment. She'd never been late on a payment. They qualified for a better rate but got talked into uh, a worse rate. And you know where it's going, right? Because you remember what happened in 2008, the subprime lending crisis nearly sunk the entire U.S. economy. It was the greatest financial disaster since the Great Depression. Three million people lost their jobs. Five million people lost their homes. 
an additional 95 million households near foreclosed homes lost $2.2 trillion in property value. The total estimated wealth loss to the crisis was somewhere around $20 trillion, conservatively, the amount of wealth that got lost to the 2008 um, lending crisis. And as I read that chapter, I got angry all over again. <laughs> like any, if you've ever read any books about the, the lending crisis, it just makes you angry when you read about it because you're like, there was, there was so much greed at play. There was so much, the greed of, um, you know, the banks that were making these loans. And people think, well, the subprime lending crisis, you, of course, you're, you're making a loan for somebody who's a high-risk borrower. So if you're making a loan for a high-risk borrower, you're going to charge more interest. I, I understand all that. But many cases were the same as the Tomlins. They weren't high-risk borrowers, but they got talked into high-risk situations. And then when the jobs changed and all that kind of stuff, they couldn't make the payments. So I'm reading about you know the greed of some of these banks, the greed about the investment banks that were purchasing packages of loans that they knew were junk loans, but they thought, well, we can sell them before the people start defaulting on them. And, of course, that eventually caught up. And, you know, the greed of, of Wall Street and the greed of sales reps. You know, she's making $725,000 a year in commissions selling these loans to folks who are making fifty dollars to $60,000 a year. So you just, you just, you read it, you're just so astounded at the greed. I, every time I've looked at a documentary of that, it's just like, they, 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 just the, so much greed. And that greed leads to manipulation and to lying and deceit and just... Pursuit, like, what do you do about that? How do you stop that? Is there an answer to the greed? And we live in a system, obviously, and we live in a, our system in America, in some ways fosters greed, in some ways rewards greed. Not everybody who's greedy gets caught, right? We say, you know, sometimes you, you can make a good, strong argument that greed would get you ahead in the American system, and, and you got a good chance of making it. Um, but is there an answer to it? I mean, this is the, so I'm reading, I read in the morning. So I'm reading this chapter going, this, man, just the greed, it just angers me and it sickens me. Like, is there any answer to greed? Oh, no, I got to get ready. I got to study for Sunday. Okay, Romans 15, what in the world I'm going to talk about? And I'm reading through Romans 15 and Paul is explaining something that he's getting ready to do. The reason he can't come to Rome straight away is because he's got to deliver a contribution to the poor in Jerusalem. And he talks about this contribution in 2 Corinthians um, verses 8 and 9. You can read all about the contribution, why, why Macedonia is raising money for the poor in Jerusalem. And it just, the intersection of it hit me. Because I'm like, that's the only antidote for greed in our society, is generosity. Like as much as I want to be angry at the sales rep and go, how could they be so greedy? If you're dangling $750,000 in front of me... I might be tempted to be greedy too, right? I mean, you might be tempted to do, like we, we want to think, whenever we read about the lending crisis, we're like, I can't believe that that happened. You know, I would never do something like that. Well, the fact of the matter is, we would all do something like that. I mean, that's, what, that's the deal with greed. I, I have no doubt that the lady was a Christian. And, and, but her faith got blinded by greed because, you know, Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. You'll hate the one and love the other. I mean, it's very easy for money to become our God. And the antidote, the only antidote to greed is generosity. That's the only antidote to greed because generosity balances out our tendency to greed. Generosity is, I mean, a greed is defined as an insatiable lust for more, especially wealth or power. Generosity is defined as a readiness to give back more than is expected or required. 
So both of them are about more. It's just one's about more wealth, more money, more power, and one's about more love, more generosity, more service, more, serv- more helping others. And Paul, I think here in, in this end of Romans, he actually, in explaining the contribution that he's getting ready to take, he actually says generosity is not just a good idea, it's your obligation. I don't know if you caught it when I read it. If you did catch it when I read it, you, you, you would have been a little bothered by it. But I want to go back and look at verse 27. Romans chapter 15, verse 27. Look at what he says. He's talking to the Gentile believers in Rome. And he's talking about Macedonia. And the believers that were there, these Gentile believers in Macedonia are going to give money to the Jewish believers. And he said, they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. <laughs> they owe it to them. That right there is further evidence that Paul could never be a fat pastor in 21st century America. He, would, there, he wouldn't make it six weeks in a, in a pastor in a modern American church. Can you imagine if I stood up on Sunday morning and said, we're going to take our offering right now, and I know you're going to be pleased to give, but not only should you be pleased to give, you owe it. What would your reaction be? <laughs> I don't owe nothing. I don't know nothing to you or nobody. I don't owe, no way. I mean, why would Paul say that it is an obligation? And it's because in Paul's mind, generosity is not about meeting practical needs as much as it is about meeting spiritual needs. And that's a different way of thinking about generosity. That's different than the way we think about generosity. Here, he, defined, he describes it all in verse 27, verse B. He says, for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews. To share with them in their material blessings. That's a very different way than we think about, about generosity. We, we think about generosity from practical terms. If there's a need, then I will give money to that need and we'll meet that practical need. And Paul said, no, no, gener- there's, a, there, there's a spiritual consideration to giving that is outweighs the practical considerations to give. And yeah, there's a practical need here. He's going to take this contribution and he's going to give it to the people uh, in Jerusalem who are, who are suffering. That's the practical consideration. But the spiritual consideration at play is, I think he's hoping, because remember, these two groups are divided. I think he's hoping that this contribution is going to say something to the Jewish believers. Because he mentions, even in the text, like, you know, pray for me about Judea. You know, pray for me that I'm safe from Judea. And you remember the Judaizers who were trying to, they're not only condemning the Gentile believers, but they're openly persecuting the Gentile believers. And so I think Paul's mindset with the, um, with the offering is not just that it meets practical needs, but that it communicates a message to the Jewish believers that we are brothers and sisters, that we support your work, that we thank you for what you've done, that we, we want to partner with you in the gospel. Because when we give money to something or we give money to someone, it doesn't just meet a practical need, it communicates something, does it not? Like when we give money, just in the regular offering of the church, when we give money, it, it's not just meeting a need. I mean, sure, it, it keeps the lights on and it, you know, allows for ministry to happen and it, you know, covers, you know, things that our kids are doing in there. It's all, it meets needs. But we're communicating, I support your mission and I support this vision and I want to partner with you in the gospel. I want to be a part of this. I mean, that's that spiritual component of, of giving that, that Paul is, is talking about here, that it's not just a... Uh, it's not just about, in other words, I, I, the, way, the, the way I think Paul would say it is, um, it's not, I'm not telling you to give because the poor in Jerusalem need it. I'm telling you to give because the rich in Macedonia need it, and the rich in Rome need it, and the, and the rich in Corinth need it. 
You see, you see what I'm saying? Here's what he said in another letter. First uh, Timothy, and this is the rich in Ephesus. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. There it is. There's the antidote to the greed. Don't be greedy. Don't be arrogant. Be generous. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Do you see how Paul roots generosity in the spiritual aspect of generosity, not just the practical aspect of generosity? And you see how when, when we give money, it communicates something. It, you know the, the, the word charity? You know the synonym for charity? is love. That's the synonym for charity. It, it's, a, it's an act of, of love when we give. And that's, that's the only antidote to, to greed in our society. So um, to put this in very practical terms, we've got a gift today that we're going to give to uh, Hope Center. And I was thinking about it in these terms. Like we, it, it's, it's much more, there's a practical component to what we're going to give them. All right? There's a, there is a practical component to it. Well, we, we're going to give them a check. What are they going to do with it? Well, they're gonna, we're going to open up a residential recovery center here in Columbia. And that money is going to buy some vans and maybe hire some staff. And, you know, and that's, there's a practical consideration to it. But there's much more than a practical consideration to it. Because what, we're, what, what are we communicating with the gift? With the gift, what we're communicating is we want to partner with you in this work to help people discover freedom in Christ. We want to partner with you and support the work that you're doing to help men and women get clean and sober. We, want to, we support this work, and we want to be partners with you in the gospel of introducing people to a Savior that will save them from those things. And we're communicating to the families of addicts that we, we want to partner with you. We want to walk with you in this journey. We want to we want to to walk with you to help you discover the freedom that is in Christ. That's why I mean generosity is way more than just, hey, you got some needs? Well, here you go. Here's some money to meet those needs. There's a spiritual component to it, and there's a unity component to it as well. Because we together as one body, because I can promise you the check that we're gonna give. There's not one single person in this church that could have wrote that check, okay? It took everybody giving together. Whether you gave $10 to it or $100 or $5,000, it took everybody giving together to say, we as a collective body of the Lord's people, just like they did in Macedonia and Achaia when they sent that to the poor in Jerusalem, we as a collective body of the Lord's people want to partner with you in this work, and we want to communicate that there is, there is life outside of what you know as life. There is life outside of it. So um, it just so happened, I didn't plan it that way, just so happened that generosity ended up being the theme on the Sunday that I wanted to present this check uh, to Hope Center. And uh, I don't want to get rid of this check because I'm nervous to hold it. Uh, this is, I'm going to get some guys up here in just a minute from Hope Center, but uh, well, y'all come on up, come on up guys. Uh, introduce y'all to some, you, this is Stephen, Michael, and Rodney. I won't try last names. Stephen, Michael, and Rodney. Y'all come on up. Thank you for being with us. Yep, that's Rodney. And these guys have, we've spent some time meeting with these guys. They, they were here, what, two days after Christmas, three days after Christmas, looking at property in Columbia uh, for this. And 
The reason I'm saying I won't get rid of this check, I picked it up this morning, and uh, I don't like hanging on to checks like this. <laughs> I like, to, I like to, to get these to where they're supposed to go pretty quick because I believe, and our treasurer can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is the largest check we've ever written in the history of this church. Not just anybody, but the largest check we've ever written in the history of this church. Um, and we're going we're gonna to give it to you guys to form a partnership with you. And um, so I want to present this on behalf of the folks in Murray Hills. And we don't have, we were going to do one of those big checks and the big picture and all that. And we're like, nah, let's just, that thing will actually cash. The big check won't cash. The Publishers Clearinghouse, it won't cash. This one will actually cash. And uh, I, I didn't even tell you this, Stephen. I'll tell you now. Um, I'm, I, this check's for $250,000. That's what this check's for. I told him that. He knew that. Did you know we raised three hundred thousand the day we did our offering? Wow, three hundred thousand! So we got some more money for more needs in the future. Whether it's supporting the men's center that's going to be established here, or whether it's starting a women's center, who knows what it's going to be? But we're taking that additional fifty thousand, and that's earmarked for Hope Center, and we're going to be using that for Hope Center as well. That just tells you what what folks think about the work that you're doing. So I want to give that to you on behalf of Murray Hills Church, and let's start this partnership together. Um, where's the microphone? Scott, here. Here's one over here. I want, I, want to, I want you to hear from them just a little bit. we got a little bit of time. Now, first, Stephen, I'll ask you to tell them what you do and then introduce uh, Michael and Rodney here. But you, uh, We need to get out of here about 1040 at least. And you'll have to wait in line. I know. I'm sorry. But uh, the traffic. Is what I'm talking about. But no, we got we got about 10 minutes here. So. 10 minutes, that's plenty of time. Well, my yeah. name is Stephen Polk. I'm the regional director here over Tennessee of Hope Center Ministries. I'm also a six-time convicted meth cook. In 2007, I was convicted of my sixth manufacturing charge, and they put me in prison with a 16-year sentence. But I met someone in there. His name was Jesus Christ, and it changed my life. It changed everything. I got out in 2011. I started working for a Hope Center, and there wasn't a whole lot of people that was trying to give me a job at that point in time in my life. Back then, I think we had around three locations. Today, we have 40 locations worldwide, and Maury Hills is going to make number 41. And I thought, what was I going to come up here and say to everybody? Let me tell you something. The money you're given is something that you're investing in. You're investing in the lives of men in this community, people that you work with, you went to school with, your neighbors, lives being changed. That's where this money is going to go. And the good thing about it is you can see this for yourself because they're going to be right here on the front row. When you do an altar call, they're going to be up here with their faces down, crying out to God because they're hungry, and they want change. They want the same change that I wanted, the same change that these two guys wanted. And the reason I got these guys with me today is because they're graduates of Hope Center. But not only that, they run their own Hope Centers now. And I wanted you to hear from them, hear the fruit of what this ministry does through people just like me, just like Michael, just like Rodney, who got addicted to drugs and lost hope. So Michael, he's a district director. He's going to be over this location, and I want you to hear from him. So as you said, my name is Michael Himes. Uh, I get the honor and privilege to serve as campus director at our Hope Center in Clarksville. But I wasn't always a director. I wasn't always serving God. So when, whenever my addiction started, I was married. I had two young kids. I was a little league baseball coach. I was the uh, junior pro football coach. You know, I was doing the most, right? 
I got addicted to painkillers, prescription medicine. And from that point on, it just escalated into illegal drugs, right? By the time I got to Hope Center, I was divorced. My kids wouldn't talk to me. My family would have nothing to do with me. When I showed up at the Hope Center, I showed up with a backpack. It's the only thing I owned in my life. It got to the point it was so bad, my sister would call me. And when I'd answer the phone, she'd just hang up. She just wanted to know if I was still alive. So when I got to the Hope Center, through my counselors, through my Bible study teachers, I got saved. And from that point on, I'd love to sit here and say that it was easy after that, but it's not. It's not. There's a lot of work into it. But what, what the work has given me, though, because, um, see, God didn't call me to be a drug addict. He didn't call me to be a deadbeat dad or a deadbeat husband. Today I can sit here and tell you I'm about to have four years sober in April. I have a wife. I have my kids call me. They want to talk to me now. They want to come and, and sit in church service with me. You know, where before they wouldn't even answer my phone calls. The... Uh, I don't have, like 10 minutes is not enough for me to tell you what God has done for me, right? But what I can tell you is, is God made me into a man that I can love my wife, I can love God, I can love my children, and I can love people. And I just want to say thank you for giving that opportunity to a man here in Mark County. I'm Rodney Anthony. I'm the campus director over in Hornwall, Tennessee. Um, that's a story in itself. Um, I was born and raised in Hornwall, Tennessee. Lived there for 30 years. And um, I left Hornwall and said I'd never come back. That's where my opiate addiction had started. And I moved to Lebanon, Tennessee. Thought I was going to run from my problems. But um, it got worse. I became a heroin addict whenever I was in Lebanon. And I tried, I tried everything. Nothing worked. I had a good friend in Hermitage that got me into the Hope Center. He's good friends with Stephen Paul. He got me into the Hope Center. And I started over in Camden, Tennessee. And while I was in Camden, that's how God works. Hmm. While I was in Camden, I would said I'd never come back to Hornwall, but I was there for probably 45 days, and me and the uh, director of Camden at the time, we went to Lowe's to get some... Uh, Material was doing some stuff around the center. And when we was on that ride over, he said, they're fixing to start a new center. He said, I was just curious if you want to come with me. And uh, I said, where's it at? He said, Hornwall, Tennessee. I said, man, I'm going to have to pray about that one. <laughs> but um, I ended up coming. I didn't know how the people over in Hornwall would take it, you know, because of the things I've done there. But um, since I've been back in Hornwall, they've opened, you know, welcomed me with open arms. Everybody's loved on me. Um, it's been a blessing to be back in Hornwall. The thing about Hope Center, though, is it's not only restoring lives. It's restoring families, communities. You'll see a lot of these guys come in here. Their first, second day in, they come to church, and they'll be by themselves. You give them a few months, sometimes not even that, 
their families with them. You start seeing their families coming with them. You see smiles on their face. You see hope in their eyes. So um, that's pretty much all I got. Thank you. So the same stories that you've just heard, short testimonies are the ones that you're going to create right here at this church. That's what you're investing in today. More, thank, Pastor, thank you guys so much. Uh, this is really going to change this church. The lives that are going to be changed here in this community, it's going to be amazing. Let me tell you something. I, when you go to a church with a Hope Center, it is on fire. These people are up here on the altars crying out to God. Your baptisms are going through the roof. Not only for these men, but their families. We're not after just them. We're after the entire family unit. Our program is set up and designed to get the entire family saved. Uh, the only way any of these people are going to hell is over our dead body. I promise <laughs> you that. Pastor, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. I want to, you guys come down this way. Let's stand together. We're going we're gonna to dismiss with prayer, but we, we're trying to get back in the habit of doing this uh, because you heard, him say, you heard him mention altar call how many times? Two or three times. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to start having some altar calls uh, here to, when we start this Hope Center up. So I want to, anybody wants to pray over these men, let's come down here on the floor. That way you're not standing on the stage. But I, I want to surround them in prayer. So anybody wants to come, let's come and, and let's just surround them in prayer. And uh, this prayer will be our closing prayer as well. But let's surround these gentlemen in the work that they're doing and the work that Hope Center is doing. And let's pray over their ministry. Let's pray over what we're getting ready to do here in Columbia. Uh, God, you, uh, as Michael said, you... You called these men for something. You called them to step into the roles that they have stepped into. And you called them to Hope Center. And uh, I want to pray for, uh, for Stephen. I want to pray as he is, he's the campus startup director. And he's got his hands full right now because you're blowing this ministry up, God. And, and more and more churches are coming on board. And more and more centers are starting. Give him the strength and endurance to keep starting those new centers and knowing that it's going to change lives in the communities that it goes into. Uh, pray for Michael and the center in Clarksville and, and his role as a district director. Pray that uh, you, you strengthen him, give him the resolve to, uh, to continue doing the work that he's doing and uh, continue his, his path on sobriety and to continue changing the lives of other men uh, that come into this program. And I pray for Rodney. Um, that's my hometown too, Hornwald. And I know that the, that town, that community has been devastated by... Uh, drugs that have been coming into it and it's not it's not an urban uh, story or a rural story it's an everybody story and I want to pray for my hometown for Hornwald and I want to pray that that the Hope Center continues to to change lives there and it continues to help people discover the freedom that comes uh, through your son Jesus and Father last I want to pray for this place for Murray Hills and the center that we're going to start in Columbia I want to pray for the the lives that are going to be changed uh, through this work and so I'm thankful for the generosity of your people that make this happen. And uh, just go with us as we leave this place. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's talk, feel free to share it with your friends. Please also consider rating and subscribing on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please visit us online at murrayhills.com.